Thank you, Adam. Uh, Adam's prayer um, could very well be and should be a prayer that we have uh, for one another. Um, call to be messengers is a call that is uh, to all of us. In fact, um, much of what is said today uh, will be said to the end that we are able to live and in the course of our living uh, communicate uh, what it is to trust in God, uh, to believe in Him, to look to Him beyond this life and, and for eternity. Uh, a couple of things I'd mentioned to you uh, and I mentioned to some earlier, but uh, just as we continue to pray, um, today is day 14 of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. I hope you've been following along with that. I hope you've been giving attention to the text and praying through them. And I trust that as you have, that God has spoken to your hearts. Um, a lot of that in regards to our own devotion and our own lives uh, is toward the end of shaping us that we will be messengers um, and that we will sense our responsibility in the course of that and be faithful to it. I was reminded how important that is uh, just, this, just this past week uh, as I read that one of John MacArthur's sermons this past week was censored by YouTube and pulled from YouTube. It was a message that he preached, I think, last Sunday uh, regarding uh, transgenderism. And YouTube pulled it because they said it was hate speech. Um, I think he had preached a message and had referred to uh, the Canadian law that is uh, being voted upon and may have already been voted on uh, and ratified, but the Canadian law, uh, which um, again uh, is embracing transgenderism uh, and is consistent in agreement with the uh, LBGTQ plus agenda. And in the course of MacArthur's message, and it was coming from Scripture, he just simply made this comment. Uh, he said that um, uh, we are either XX or XY. Um, there's no such thing as transgenderism. Um, physiology doesn't hold it out. Science doesn't hold it out. Everything points to the fact that it doesn't exist. And they call that hate speech censored his message and pulled his message from YouTube. Well, why do I say that? I say that is because we are living in a culture today where we are constantly being called on to give evidence of what we say we believe and what we profess, and then our lives match that. And not only our lives, but our message matches that. And our message and our lives need to be consistent with each other. And that is becoming um, more and more critical, if there's such a thing as it being more critical, becoming more and more critical. And there is a cost to pay for that. And there is a cost to pay for our devotion. Uh, nevertheless, we do what? Uh, we seek to be devoted uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek to bring honor and glory to God. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to Job. Chapter 9. We'll come back to it in a moment, but I want to read it. Beginning in verse 17. We'll back up in verse 13, maybe it will help us. Job, uh, uh, in a response uh, to this first wave of comfort if that's what you want to call this first wave of comfort uh, in fact I think it comes uh, you know in uh, direct response to Bildad he said God will not turn back his anger beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab how then can I answer him choosing my words with him though I'm in the right I cannot answer him I must appeal for mercy to my accuser if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath. 
but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It's all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. And then he asks his question, and it is a rhetorical question. If it is not he, who then is it? If it is not he, who then is it? Job's not an easy book to stay with. It really isn't. If you do more than just a cursory read to accomplish maybe your annual Bible reading plan, uh, you'll be drawn to it, and I will tell you that your heart will be stirred. The reason is, is that we are moved by human suffering. There's probably not a person in here, maybe some of you younger ones, I have not, most of you adults, at some time or another, we have talked about individuals who you are connected with in your life that have been through some form of suffering, and we have talked about those things. We're drawn to it. Human suffering is real. It's heavy. It is painful. Human suffering keeps the sufferer up at night, and it keeps those who are close to the sufferer up at night. Sleep escapes the sufferer because of the pain. It, it is painful. And it keeps them up because of the uncertainty. And, and even for those who are most close, the hearts and minds of those who are close to the sufferer, it's like a hamster wheel. has been for me. Spinning from one emotion to the other and from one thought or one question to the other about the nature of the suffering of the person that I love and care about and the person that I'm tied to and connected to. Uh, we've said it before that our lives consist of, and this, this is it, varying trials and varying stages of trials. Uh, over the last month, uh, I've been just been reading Job over the course of the last two or three months, but the last month I've just been camped out in Job uh, and considering uh, this question, this whole question uh, about if not he, then who is it? If not he, then who is it? In other words, we're getting to the cause of the suffering. I thought about this, and this is a question that I'm, I'm posing and I'm still pretty sure I have the answer to, but maybe I'm wrong. How well has the church really done, and I'm talking about the church at large, how well has the church really done regarding how it speaks of and how it models how to walk through and deal with suffering? How well have we done? In other words, in our efforts to be culturally relevant, have we been successful in this area? Have we been successful in this area? When it seems at times that the larger churches and the mega churches and their pastors and, and those organizations that they are tied to are kind of speaking for the church into the culture, have we really been talking rightly about suffering? Have we been communicating along the way uh, a biblical message? And, and have we been promoting a model that reflects how Christians are to walk through and deal with suffering. I'm not sure we have. I'm not sure we have, and here's why. It's because if we look at it, the message that we hear oftentimes is a, a Christian light, Jesus light, commitment light, church light kind of message. And it's an attempt to contextualize, but I wonder if it has failed and left many professing believers, and certainly the culture, destitute of a theology that grants 
listen, that grants an understanding that really can be translated relationally when suffering comes. Why do I say that? Because everything about theology does in fact translate into relationships. What is it that God has done? In Christ, He came and translated Himself. The incarnation was to come into humanity. And in that, show us how to relate to God and how to relate to each other. When we talk about the church, we talk about the church in the context of our relationships with each other by virtue of our relationship with Christ who gives us, provides for us, ushers us into, brings into, stands before us that we might have a relationship with God. That means there has to be something in the course of suffering that is relational. And in the course of our relationships, how well do we do in walking alongside of a brother or sister in Christ or an unbeliever when it comes to these times of suffering? Do we have a theology and an understanding of suffering that enables us to minister to and to care for lovingly and rightly in the midst of suffering. I'm not sure that we've done a good job in that. As I was sharing with someone earlier this week, the question came up, well, why are you dealing with Job? And every, when you talk about Job, folks are just kind of, man, I read it and I want to move on. And I said, well, I think it's the right time. And I have, even in thinking through, it's the right time to deal with Job. We have our our preaching schedule made out. That doesn't mean it can't change. It doesn't mean that it'll never change. We put Job on our preaching schedule a year and a half ago. But the closer we came to it, the more I realized, yes, we need to hear the gospel from Job. None of us right now, I don't believe, are in any major crises in the way of tragedy. Most of us aren't. I'm not saying that we don't have troubles and difficulties, but we're not dealing with the death of one of our children or the death of a teenager. We're not standing in the aftermath of a tornado that has swept across our area uh, and just devastated our community. We're not standing in those places. We're not here standing in the wake of a school shooting where tens of 20 or 30 or 40 students have been shot and some have been killed. We're not there. These kinds of things are, are not here with us. So now is a good time to deal with this. We do have those uh, who are experiencing personal suffering in some significant ways. So I don't want to make less of their pain and their struggle. So hear me. I don't want to. We don't want, we can't minimize their pain. But I hope our time together over these few weeks will help us personally and as a body to come to deal with and to understand how to walk through these times. And this is not the first time we've talked about them, but my goodness, we can't go to Scripture and hear about it just one time. We are almost, in the course of our three years together, we have almost read through the Psalms in our call to worships and in other, and, and in other places. It was deliberate. So many of those Psalms were Psalms of lament where the psalmist is crying out for help, for hope, for mercy, because he's suffering and he's communicating for the larger body of those who are suffering. And he is reminding us in the course of worship, because those were worship songs, in the course of worship, that so much of life is hinged around our suffering and our hardships and our struggles. And yes, there are times where there are great things that are taking place. 
But most of the time, we are gathering with people who, whether they say it or not, are struggling inwardly and suffering in a lot of different ways. And we walk alongside of those who are suffering. I'm reminded that even as we began uh, Oak Valley Church, our year of preparation when we were still at Scotts Hill we were dealing with the struggles and sufferings of Angie. Jamie had committed to go out with us in October. He had committed to go out with us to plant Oak Valley Church. And before we were through the first month of our first year of training, Jamie was absent. And we walked with Angie through that struggling and through that suffering. And we walk with Him through His uh, suffering and struggling. And then we felt the pain of His loss and felt the pain of His absence. And we walked along with Angie as she dealt with that pain. So it's not foreign to us. And it will come again. And it may be in the death of one of our children or one of our youth or one of our young moms or a dad or one of our elderly folks. In due time, we are going to deal with that and we are going to walk along with family members through the course of this who deal with it. Justin, I just looked over you and I think about what you, you and your co-workers went through uh, back here uh, not too long ago with uh, the death of a family member and the struggles and the agony that comes along with that. And how do we walk through those things? The experience of human suffering has perplexed people and minds since the fall. We hear that from the psalmist and we hear it through Scripture. And for Christians, well, theirs is another question too. Their question is looking at their understanding of the sovereignty and the providence of God. How can a good and a merciful God in the course of this rule and reign as we sang this morning? And I hope you picked up on those phrases as we were singing them. Things that only Christ command. The things that God plans. We're going to sing some more of it, but we're going to hear some more of it. And it's there that we want to begin this morning. We want to begin with God. When suffering comes, we naturally, this is the, almost always the first place we go, we want to know what or who is behind it. What or who has caused it. This is in some ways an, an easy question for a believer. Particularly if we have been told that God is sovereign over all things, we immediately run and it's an easy thing. We say, well, God. If God is sovereign over all things, then, then He's sovereign over all things. And somewhere He's in the midst of that. And then it becomes an even tougher situation for us to answer. Because we read through Scripture and we can't escape the reality that God is behind all things. And that nothing happens apart from Him. And when we are called on in the public square, or when we are sitting with in a home of a family who doesn't know the Lord, or when we are walking alongside of a friend, and they are asking this question, in our minds we know that God is behind all of this somehow. And oftentimes in wisdom, we will hold our tongue for the moment and wait for some days to pass. But oftentimes in fear, we are afraid to say anything. And part of that is, is because we don't have it worked out in our own minds and our own heart. I'm reminded this morning as Booney and Catherine were singing and we had a conversation afterwards. We talked about this and I want you to know this is that if you are not in the midst of suffering today, the things that we will discuss this week and next week certainly are in, they are intending and intentional in helping us know how we should and even why we should 
hold on to these things. But I want to tell you, it's an entirely different thing when you are in the midst of that suffering and you are trying to work through and hold on to the things that you know are true. I'm reminded, some of you may have met Aaron King here. Aaron's been here several times. In fact, he was here uh, just a few weeks ago whenever we were, uh, when we were celebrating our, our third anniversary. Uh, I remember sitting in the congregation of people back here some years past when Aaron and Amy's son Ari died. And I know Aaron's theology, and I remember him standing up and stating the very words of Job. I understand that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And I have to take the good, and I have to take the bad that comes with that. And he meant that. But he said it with a broken heart. And he had to work through it in the same way that Job had to work through it. Look in chapter 42 of Job for just a moment, and, and then we're going to move on and look at the text. But I want you to catch this. Job knew how he ought to respond, and we're going to talk about this. He did respond this way. But notice what he realized on the backside in verse 5 of chapter 42. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I heard the truth. I embraced it. I grabbed a hold of it. I restated it. But then what does he say? But now my eyes see you. We need to be equipped and prepared. But we're going to have to live through it. And talking about it on this side of suffering is much different than living through the suffering. I, want you, I just want to be honest with you. Boys, girls, young men and young women, all of us, listen. That's the truth. Hold on to the truths that we're going to teach. Hold on to them and walk through it. But it is a whole lot easier to talk about them on this side. And then it's to grab a hold of them with all of your might when you walk through them. I want you to notice the first of Job's words recorded in the text. So go back to Job chapter 1 and 2. In other words, keep this in mind. This is our question. If not him, then who? There was no question in Job's mind about who. Don't you find it interesting that in the first two chapters with all of this about Job's life, he's basically, there are two sentences recorded. He speaks twice and both times hear what he says. In chapter 1, in verse 21, after all of this has been taken from Job, he's not yet, his body has not yet been stricken. He's not sick yet. But after all had been taken from him, the scriptures record, he says one thing. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's no question in Job's mind about who is behind all of this. Now his body is stricken, and he speaks again. And he's not saying, woe is me. He's not crying out in pain. He just simply says this to his wife in chapter 2, in verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? There's no question in Job's mind about who is behind this. No passage in Scripture communicates any greater personal human loss apart from losing one's life. And the person experiencing the loss is given two lines and he attributes God for the loss. And I want you to miss this. This is the man whom God says is wise, blameless, upright, and feared God. Okay? 
So he's not talking out of his mind. He's not talking in sin. He's not speaking something that is untrue. God is not going to reprimand him for what he says. God's not going to look back on him and say, Job, you got it all wrong. That's not what he does. He says this because he has heard it. He has been taught this. He has lived it. He has hold, held on to it. So when it comes, he immediately knows where to go. This is the man who Satan said would curse God if his wealth and health were removed from him. Now I want you to notice this. Job did not try to create another cause to somehow protect the honor of God. He didn't. He didn't stand up before his family and friends and say, oh, this can't be God. No, God's good. He, this can't come from God. He can't have anything to do with this. That's not what Job says. He said, God gives and God takes away, blessed be His name. That's what He said. He said, if I'm going to take the good from Him, I've got to take all that He gives. And I have to embrace that and realize that it comes. In a lot of ways, the church has sought to somehow or another soften, make God more appealing to people. And a lot of it has come just simply because we haven't been able to get our minds around it and in a lot of our teaching, we don't even try to get our minds around it. Some of that has come because as we consider the sovereignty of God in all things, while we hold to that truth, we just simply have difficulty with it. We've said that. We see its value. However, we try to think through possibilities where it should be softened. Here's what I mean. We're okay to stand and say that these bad things have come as a result of sin and God is unleashing His wrath on this group of people or on this particular thing where folks are suffering as a result of their sin or in some way to warn them that He is sovereign. We're okay with saying that. We're okay with saying that. And we are okay to embrace that. We're often okay to speak of God's sovereignty when we see those whom we believe to be righteous receive good things. We're... We're okay with that. We appeal to the sovereignty of God when, uh, we, uh, when we escape what in our best judgment would be a fatal wreck. If, if somehow or another in the course of our today something happens and we see, man, we just missed death, man, we'll praise God for that. We'll say, God is sovereign, isn't He? But we often struggle with the reality of God's sovereignty when it comes to a six-year-old suffering and dying from cancer. We struggle with the sovereignty of God when a 10-year-old is struck out by the road, by a vehicle, and his life is taken. We struggle with it when a 36-year-old mother of four wastes away before her family over the course of six months, and she passes away with her children and her husband gathered around them. We struggle with that when the young father leaves to go to work and is in an automobile accident and is killed and taken away from his family. We struggle with thinking that somehow behind this is a God that is good and loving and merciful. This kind of suffering is much more difficult for us to point to God and say God is sovereign. And when we do, we almost say that apologetically. Isn't that true? In these cases, we are left with what seems to be a great dilemma. We're okay with God being sovereign over good things that seem right and bad things that seem right. We struggle with thinking of God being sovereign over bad things that seem wrong and even good things that seem wrong. And isn't that at least the point or one of the points that is being made in Job? We looked at it last week. Job is a righteous man who suffers tremendously. A righteous man that suffers tremendously. And you know what's interesting in the book of Job? It is, it is a story from beginning to end, so to speak. In other words, it's not left dangling. We're not unsure about the beginning and we're not unsure about the end. We see the beginning and the end of Job. And in no point does anyone in Job, in the book of Job, 
No point does anyone believe or communicate otherwise that something has occurred that God isn't controlling. Not one person. You would think somewhere in the book of Job that someone would speak up and say, like our culture would say, no, that can't be God. But no one does. Let's listen to some of the things that are said. So if you have your copies of Scripture, just open them up and we're going to go verse by verse and we're going to look at some of these things that are said. We've already heard what Job said. We'll come back to them. But look in Job chapter 4. And let's look at verses 7 through 11. Eliphaz, the first one of his friends that speaks. And by the way, we'll, we'll talk about how we later on in our series, we're going to talk about how we uh, are, to, are to minister coming out of this. But uh, at least here, Eliphaz uh, begins to speak. And in verse 7 he says, remember, remember this. And then he asks this question, it's, it's a rhetorical question. Who that was innocent ever perished? He's assuming that everyone is going to say, well, no good man has ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they're consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken, the strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now granted, all three of these initial friends point to a retributive kind of justice. In other words, God is behind this thing that is happening to you, Job. You're just holding yourself up as being innocent, but the judgment of God upon you proves different. But the answer is still, God is behind this very thing. Look at chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Eliphaz says, because God is behind this, if this were me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Look in verses 17 and 18. Behold, blessed is the one to whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up. He shatters, but His hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven. No evil shall touch you. Look at Job's response in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. There's still no question in Job's mind who's behind this. Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Look at chapter 7, verses 20 through 21. Job states again, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Talking about God. Why have you made me your mark? In other words, it's clear to him that God has his sight set on him. That he has his rifle, so to speak, the crosshairs on him. Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall live in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Look at Bildad, chapter 8 and verse 1. Bildad says in verse 1, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice or does the almighty pervert the right these are questions that are being asked presuming understanding that all that is coming to job is coming from god and granted they don't have it figured out they just know that when bad things happen bad things are happening to bad people in their mind and their thinking is flawed 
They don't understand who God is. But even in their understanding, they are looking at these hard things and suffering as coming from God and God alone. Look at verse 13 of chapter 8. Such are the paths of all who forget God. What? Suffering. Suffering is the path of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. How does Job respond to that? Well, look in verse 17. We read it. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. And then he goes on to say in verse 24, If it is not him, then who is it? Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. I loathe my life. I'll give free utterance to my complaint. I'll speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you, have, have you eyes of flesh? Do you, do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I'm not guilty and there is none to deliver out of my hand, out of your hand? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me all together. Remember that you have made me like clay, and you'll return me to the dust. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these Things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. Let's hear what Zophar had to say. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should you babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But, oh that God would speak and open His lips to you, that He would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for He is manifold and understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. There's no question in Zophar's mind about who's behind this. In fact, he says, you're suffering, but you're not even suffering at the degree that you ought to suffer. You're not even getting what you deserve. Look in chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. You would think by now that Job would, would, would relent and say, Oh no, this can't be of God. I'm, 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 I'm innocent, so this can't be of God. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Who among all these does not know that the, what the hand of God, that the hand of God has done this? Done what? Done, done this to me. In His hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Look in verses 14 and 16. If He tears down, none can rebuild. If He shuts a man in, none can open. If He withholds the waters, they dry up. If He sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With Him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver. Or his. Look at chapter 19 and verse 21. Job says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. O you my friends. Why? For the hand of God has touched me. Look at chapter 27. I know we're going through here. I, I want you to see it. I want you to understand. Not a place here. Is there any argument for anyone other than God? As God lives, who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you're right till I die I'll not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. But 
even in the course of Job's argument in defense of himself, he says, I know that God is the one who is dealing with me. Look in chapter 30 and verse 11. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. And then look at verses 19 through 21. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Let's look at chapter 34. What does Elihu have to say about God in all of this? Chapter 34, verses 10 through 15. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Elihu is addressing Job's three friends. And he says, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. In other words, any thought that you have that God is wrong in the course of his actions is from God. But, but be reminded that he doesn't do wrong. And far from the Almighty that he should do wrong, for according to the work of a man, he'll repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall on him of a truth. God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Look at chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. Elihu says, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. In other words, what He is bringing to you is good. We'll look at that next week. But the point is, is that there is no point that Elihu says anything different. And what does God say? In the course of all of this. Well back up to chapter 1. You say why didn't we start with God? Well. Let's hear Him. In light of all that has been said. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan. Behold. All that he has is in your hand. And this is not a request, mind you, what is getting ready to be made. He's not requesting anything. He says, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Look in chapter 2, verse 6. Similar statement. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. In other words, you have him. There's a boundary set on you. You don't kill him. You don't kill him. His life is in your hand, but you can't take it. We looked at it a moment ago, but look in Job 42. In closing, the argument of Job. And look what is said in verse 11. You would think that after all of this, and we haven't dealt with Job's, God's talk with Job and Job's confession, but at the end of everything, you would think that if Job had missed it somewhere along the way after hearing from God, he would have corrected his statement and corrected his thoughts. You would think so. But what does he say in verse 11? What does it say? And the narrator, the writer, the author said, And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon them. Upon him. Hear it again. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Our point is, is that there is no other explanation given in Job nor in Scripture. I, I was, I've already said it, let me say it again. 
Don't you think that if there was going to be a place in Scripture where the idea of God's hand in the suffering of the righteous was going to be corrected, it would be here? I would think so. But it isn't. Every person here, the author included, God, Job, and everyone who spoke to Job pointed to the fact that God was behind all of this. Even Satan's actions point to the fact that God was behind it. He only did what God told him to do and allowed him to do. The truth is not just seen here in Job. Over and over again in Scripture, we read about God's command in the universe and over all the affairs of life. Track along with me for just a minute. I want to read some verses of Scripture. Listen to them. If you're taking notes, just write them down. Psalm 115 and verse 3, the psalmist said, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135, the psalmist writes, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. Lamentations chapter 3, we read it last week, but we're coming back to it again this week. Verses 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It's not from the mouth of the Most High that good, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? One of our verses this past week as we prayed through Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap but every decision is from the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29 Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from who? Apart from your Father. Isaiah chapter 46 Isaiah says And speaking about God, declaring the end. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from the ancient things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all that that I purpose. Adam pointed us to that even in our confession. What was the litmus test for whether they were really gods or not? Tell them to tell us the past. Tell them to tell us the future. And tell them to tell us what it all means and where it's all going. And when they can do that, then you may want to consider them as a God. But they don't know the past. They don't know the future. They haven't planned it. They can't carry it out. They can't do good or bad. He offered them the opportunity. He said, come do good or harm. Just do something. And show us that you're a God. No, it's the sovereign God that plans I could go on. Our time is up. But Genesis 50 and verse 20, As for you, Joseph said to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What are we saying here? That God is the ultimate cause of everything. He's not the direct cause of evil but He is the ultimate cause. Luther said it well in regards to Satan, and I love what he had to say about Satan. He said, Satan is God's Satan. You ever heard that? You ever hear, ever read that? Luther, Martin Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. What was he saying? He says, he only exists because God created him. He only does what He does because God has empowered Him to do that and He can only do what God allows Him to do. Satan is God's Satan. He's not on His own. He's not out here doing what He just wants to do, though He wants to do it. He is not left without a leash and He is on a leash. There's certainly more that we could say here. The point is that Job didn't try to explain away God. He did eventually conclude that God was his enemy. And he wrongly concluded that. And he wasn't going to curse God, but his suffering was such that he could reason, just couldn't come to grips with how God could bring this about and at least not give him some explanation for it. 
We'll deal with that next week when we look at the purpose of suffering. But we need to settle our minds and our hearts right here. We need to settle it today that nothing is outside and apart from God and all that He is and all that He's about, even our suffering. Some of you will be familiar with the name George Muir. In the funeral message of his wife of 40 years, he said this, I miss her in numberless ways, and I will miss her more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I'm satisfied with the will of my heavenly Father. I seek by perfect submission to His holy will to glorify Him. I kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. Is there anything else that could be said? As people of God, we look at God in that way that nothing apart from Him, not even our suffering, nothing apart from Him. I don't know what suffering that you will encounter. I don't know what suffering I will encounter. I don't know what we will have to endure together as a church family. I don't know what will happen the days ahead. God does. I know that it will include suffering. I know that. but it won't come to us. It won't come to you and your family apart from God.